Welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes, the Book of Revelations, verse 2, I guess we should be calling it now. Uh, I am John Richardson, and thank God if that's not an inappropriate start, given we've already discussed religion. I am joined by Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Ed Gillespie. Good and Arbenz. Welcome back. It's week two. Sorry, can we just go back to what Ed said? If you like. <laughs> what was that? Guten Abend is good evening in German. Oh, okay. Did you do Spanish last week? I might have done uh, sort of Spanglish. I think I might have said Buena, este- buena Estente okay. or something. I'm sorry, Buenas Tardes. Or, um... <laughs> That's a new challenge then. You have to say hello in a new language every week. Yeah. We, when I was, lived, lived in Orkney, we used to do the weekly pub quiz and our team name was called The Happy Fisherman. And just to wind the quiz master up every week, we would be called The Happy Fisherman in a different language. So it was like Los Pescadores Felices. <laughs> wow, it sounds like fun on Orkney. Yeah. <laughs> long, long, long winter nights, very literally. I never knew you. Every now and again, that's the joy of working with both of you do this. You'll occasionally say, well, when I was driving cattle through the uh, Serengeti, you've <laughs> such lives of experience. Um, it's just because we're old, John. No, there's a lot of old people who haven't done that. You know, I spend some time with old people and they don't say when I lived on Orkney or anything like that. They say, <laughs> let me tell you what the problem is. <laughs> I say, I actually do a podcast on that. Perhaps you could listen to it. And they say, no, you don't talk about what the real problems are. Uh, just before I went up there, I was, like, I was working in a pub in Norwich and Brian Gunn, the kind of Scotland goalkeeper, and Norwich City player used to occasionally come in and he, one day I was on the wrong side of the bar. He said, oh, you're not working today, Ed. I said, no, I'm off to live in Orkney. He goes, that's where my family are from. Uh, and he said, are you alcoholic? And I said, no. He goes, you will be when you come back. <laughs> was he right? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't much to do of an evening. You know, I lived in a tiny little stone cottage with no heating. And so, you know, my flatmate Neil and I would come back from studying because I was doing my master's up there. Uh, and, yeah, you'd sit there, you have your tea. And then it would be cold, and we'd look at each other and go, pub? And we'd go to the pub nearly every night, mainly to stay warm. So I think that's – is that a yes? <laughs> I've, I've gigged up that way, and I'm not an attraction, but people have got two ferries and stayed overnight <laughs> to come and see me when I've gigged in that neck of the woods. So I will, I will back up the idea there's not a lot going on there because most people wouldn't come and see me if I was next door to their living room. <laughs> and two ferries is, is a real sign that – what else are we going to do? Especially when the ferries are as rough as they can be in Orkney as well. Yeah, God bless those people. I will be back soon. Thanks for caring. I was there. But I'll also be at loads of towns that don't give a shit I exist. So if you live in one of them, by all means, Google the tour dates as well. Don't think I don't need you too, Cambridge. <laughs> um, we're here to discuss leadership. Um, I don't really know what that means. Is Am I a leader? You're definitely a leader, John. You're a leader leader amongst men. Am I? Oh, God. Right. Well, that answers the question, how fucked are we? <laughs> <laughs> and I've F-bombed straight away. And one thing we do need to discuss is cussing, which was loud and present in episode one. And I see from uh, our WhatsApp exchanges this week is, is loud and present in your partnership work without me. <laughs> yeah, no, that went down really well, didn't it, Mark? <laughs> I feel quite embarrassed about it. I really? Like, yeah. How, how are you? How are you? Kind of like reflecting on it in hindsight. I think. I think. Yeah. So, uh, perhaps we should explain. <laughs> yes, Mark met the Queen this week. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, 
Let's be clear. The reason you two were able to proffer all this intellect and charm for, let's be honest, little to no money or probably negative money once we've bought gifts for our contributors is because you do work together. Mm. And sometimes you team up and advise companies. Mm-hmm. And that happened this week. Yeah. And we did it in in a, in a room, like live, which is, you know, so sort of we hadn't done that for a long time. And, I know. Uh, almost, almost forgotten how to dress from the waist down. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think there's something about putting a microphone in my hand and putting it on the stage that reminds me of when I was a stand-up. And oh. uh, I think I just went a bit too stand-up-y with it, and I did swear quite a lot. And the feedback was like, this was a fantastic message, but the swearing was really childish and undermined everything, and I feel very bad about it. I forgive you. I'm sorry, Ed. Because I did say, actually, we you know we really we really helped them think about different things. But like you know, oh, yeah, I think this is a C bomb. I mean, you know, it doesn't go down. Mm. It doesn't doesn't go down well at a corporate gig. No. Yeah. But kudos to the Catholic Church for inviting you in to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> I think. No, I mean, you know, they they were very happy. I think, and the CEO is very happy. In fact, we had a meeting with him today. What does CEO stand for? <laughs> <laughs> well, this brings us on to the subject of leadership. Of course, I see what you did there, John. It's very good. Yes. Deliberate, wasn't it? Uh, What is leadership? It's a very good question. Leadership is going to Ibiza and not turning up for the recording. Yes. (laughs) That is the other um, elephant that is about to be in the room. That uh, We are recording this section after the interview was conducted. I don't want you to think that we introduce the podcast and then Mark gets on a flight to Ibiza (laughs) while our guest is talking and then flies back. The carbon footprint of this show... um, would not support such an endeavor. But Mark, you were away swearing at people in Spanish while we conducted this interview. Uh, no, I wasn't swearing at them in Spanish. I was swearing at them in Spain. I don't think that's the same thing. Uh... Ah. <laughs> Buenos tardes, bastardos. <laughs> so Mark, what would you like to say about about Ibiza and um, what you would like to say to our listeners going into a podcast on leadership, given that they won't hear your mellifluous tones? Well, it's quite interesting because I've listened to the interview you did. And um, one of the things that the wonderful Margaret Hefferman talks about is um, how people who've profited from a certain system uh, and, and are seen as leaders in it find it very difficult to think of another mm. form of leadership or whatever. And I was asked to go out and talk to basically a room full of very wealthy corporate financiers. These are people who merge companies and do debt structuring, all that kind of stuff to basically tell them all about climate change and inequality. And um, yeah, so I was out there trying to deal with the problem that you guys were talking about. And and to to the credit of the company, they've got a new CEO in who had actually said, "These these guys need to wake up to climate change and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, as Margaret says, you know, in your interview many times, you know, everybody's late to the game. So I was kind of living what you were talking about, I think. Yes. So you're you're talking about those with vested interests. So, for example, why would someone who gets paid to fly to Ibiza to talk about the future be concerned about the future getting better? Indeed. In fact, during the (laughs) Q&A, somebody just said to me, how did you get here then? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so you did swear at them <laughs> and, uh, and then another one said why should we trust you it was i mean they really didn't want me to be there it was one of the toughest gigs i've ever done uh, I, I mean i got them around and, and actually you know, had some good feedback and i think i'm going to work with them a bit more to bring them along but you know they i were... bet you are mate you're going out for six weeks next summer are you <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh no because uh, i like prog rock 
as you know, John, and I noticed again in the interview, there was scant reference to that most magical of leadership forms, the Progressive Rock album. Do you know we had to edit it out? She kept asking and we didn't know what she was talking about. And we're like, oh, Mark would have loved this. She was asking really nuanced and interesting questions about albums. And we were just like, nah, I like Crazy Frog. He likes a bit of, uh, he likes a bit of Venga Boys. She was livid. Without any further ado, Mark, get your boarding card ready, sod off, and uh, Ed and I will conduct a fascinating and enthralling interview with Margaret. Ed, over to you. So how to introduce Margaret Heffernan? Well, famously, uh, Margaret has produced programs for the BBC for over a decade. Uh, She's been the chief executive of multiple digital and multimedia businesses. She was nominated as one of the top 100 media execs by Hollywood Reporter. She's a professor at the University of Bath. Uh, She's written six books, which is obviously more than Mark and I combined, um, including Willful Blindness and Uncharted, which we will probably touch on during the course of this interview. Uh, TED Talks have been watched a mere 12 million times, uh, and she mentors numerous CEOs and senior execs of several major global corporations. And most importantly of all, she is uh, the head of Farrington Gurney's Climate Change Action Group, (laughs) because working on the ground in the climate emergency and crisis is what really counts. Now, I met Margaret a few years ago through her role as lead faculty at the Forward Institute for Responsible Leadership, uh, where I'm honoured and privileged to be a facilitator. Uh, She is smart, sassy, uh, straight-talking, Pitch perfectly provocative, unapologetic in her honesty, and in my experience, deeply kind. Margaret famously said, let's not play the game, let's change it. Uh, And in the context of the numerous sporting metaphors that leaders always love to revert back to, I absolutely love that one because when everyone talks about marginal gain strategies, it always makes me think, you know, we don't want to be doing marginal gains. We want to be changing the entire sport. So, Margaret, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm looking forward to it. So we'll dive straight in. We always kick off, as you know, with uh, how effed are we? So is this the biggest crisis of leadership in modern history? You know, we've got the sort of politicised car crash of climate change. We've got the British Medical Journal describing uh, the UK's COVID pandemic response as socialised murder. Uh, We've got the debacle of the Afghanistan withdrawal. We've got the the self-immolation of the B word that shall not be named that we can't talk about now. You know, the kind of petrol station queues as we can't seem to get fuel into the vehicles. Is this the biggest crisis of leadership in modern history? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's interesting because for a long time, I've been quite kind of sceptical of what I think of as sort of generational narcissism. You know, like everything's specially hard for us and all this sort of stuff. But actually, I don't know of any time in history where human beings were alive and faced the perfectly plausible uh, destruction of their habitable environment. Yeah. So that's definitely new. All the other cock-ups, well, they're kind of common. But I think that we have this concatenation of crises And some of them we're not even sure about. So we don't know if we're in an economic crisis or not because economists can't decide whether there's inflation or not. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's pretty terrible. Yeah. I mean, at times like this, I sort of ask myself, what what would Genghis Khan do? Um, And I only mentioned that because, you know, if you look at what Genghis Khan did, he kind of abolished torture. uh, He embraced religious freedom. uh, He united disparate tribes. 
He hated aristocratic privilege. Um, he ran his kingdoms meritocratically and he loved learning and advanced the rights of women in Mongol society. And he's also the kind of greatest conqueror and general who ever lived, uh, ruling this self-made kingdom of nearly 12 million square miles, which lasted for the best part of seven centuries. And he, he said, a leader can never be happy until his people are happy. I wanted to ask you, you know, are, are we happy? Are our leaders happy? Well, I don't know if our leaders are happy. I kind of don't care. Um, <laughs> I, was, I mean, when I was running tech companies, I would say a great deal of the time I was unhappy because, you know, I wanted to do more than we could do, more than we had resources for, or sometimes more than was actually technically feasible. And that's a kind of scratchy unhappiness, you know, which I think is really quite creative and quite productive. And when I see the sort of jolly happy faces on many of the world leaders, if that really is how they feel, which I don't know, and I'm not sure they know, um, then I'd be even more scared than I already am. Because if they think, you know, everything in the world is getting better, then they clearly haven't done their homework. So... I think inside your jolly question is a really difficult thing, which is actually, how do we stay happy enough to be able to solve the problems in front of mm-hmm. us? Because if we, you know, and I think many of us struggle with this, if we really, truly, truly look it in the face, we're so horrified that we just can't do anything. And I think we have to stay just this side of that precipice because otherwise we're no use to anybody and in that sense you know i mean you kind of mentioned the kind of existential sort of climatic and ecological crisis i mean is that the most egregious example of leadership failure in history and you know why has it been such a kind of problem for our leaders to get their heads around well it's certainly even if we get out of it going to be the most expensive leadership failure probably in history Um, I mean, and I think of it as a leadership failure because I wouldn't call it failure when things happen, which absolutely nobody could see coming. Yeah. Um, But we've known about this for nearly 40 years now. So in other words, most of my lifetime and most of your lifetime, Ed. So, So, you know, at least in our eyes, that's a long time. Yeah. And I mean, I can remember talking about this in the 80s and quickly realizing that the pace of political change and the pace of the climate crisis was so out of sync with each other that 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 augured ill for all of us. But I didn't realize it was going to be quite this bad. There's so many opportunities we've had in history to do things better. And we kind of kick them into the long grass. You know, if you look at the pandemic and flexible working, I mean, we could have done flexible working 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. And all this tedious angst about, oh, how's it going to work, this hybrid working? Well, you know, we would really have figured that out by now. But, you know, we can see the climate crisis this year. We've seen it for a long time and done nothing. We've known for decades that it was going to prompt a migration crisis. I mean, I can remember a BBC colleague of mine named William Nicholson, very good writer and filmmaker, who made a film about people invading Europe from Morocco because of climate and war. Um, We, you know, we could have a global migration agreement to deal with this, but everybody wants to pretend that, I don't know, a few French policemen can solve it. Yeah. So we just, we keep seeing these things and we know about them and we understand them. And, you know, we just choose to be willfully blind to them. 
Can I ask about, because we're talking about leadership and we're sort of taking it as read that we're talking about the current crop of politicians, but as you sort of referenced there, there is no unity of response because we're not going into it on an even playing field. So to some extent, we're paying the price for the inequalities that we've tolerated over centuries. So every country thinks it's reasonable to act in a different way because they have secret desires to continue to profit and continue to advance their own countries. Are are the political leaders, would you say, the leaders responsible? Or what we've also seen is a shift towards business and things like that being much more powerful than than it ever was. So are the political leaders innocent to the extent that really we're we're talking about trying to change people who aren't answerable to an election? Well, I think what you really see is a sort of epidemic of bystander behavior, right? So bystander behavior says the more people who see something going wrong, the less likely it is that anybody will intervene Mm. because everybody thinks, well, somebody will do something. Mm. And so I think we've seen a lot of that. You know, we've seen a lot of nonsense game playing of, well, America isn't going to do anything until China does something and China's not going to do anything until India does something and India's not going to do something until America, you know, just lots of pass the parcel, basically. But I think you've seen the same thing in companies, you know, which is the fossil fuel companies don't want to be, none of them wants to take the first move or the first risk. The same in terms of, you know, food and all sorts of, of other sectors. I mean, you can always pick out, I guess, the real leaders who are people who have made a bold stride forward before they had to. So you would look at Ray Anderson at a company like Interface, for example, who in the 1990s decided he was going to aim for carbon neutrality. Mm. You know, more recently, you've seen Paul Pullman really try to make Unilever both socially and environmentally more responsible. But everybody talks about these people because they're so exceptional. And the really scary thing is, I've sat in so many you know business conferences where everybody just kind of worshipped at the altar of Paul Pullman, but nobody wanted to be him. <laughs> right? So I think by all measures, uh, you know, that's not leadership. Leadership means you're out in front. And what I see are lots of primarily men who are, you know, loud followers, but they're not leaders. Yeah, there's a there's a famous quote by the Bishop of Norwich. I think he said, "If you want to lead the people, you can find out which direction they're going in, and you walk in front of them." Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> as you say, there, there's a lot of loud followers who. I mean, I think that's the point, isn't it? There's a lot of posturing. I mean, if yeah. if you like the the kind of pandemic exposed ruthlessly some of that lack of leadership, which we've seen through the climate and ecology, um, mm-hmm. yeah, agenda unfolding, and then COVID comes along and Mark you know, often talks about that on the podcast as sort of as a training run um, because it it could get a lot, lot worse. And if if you like, some of those leadership fallacies have been ruthlessly exposed, haven't they? You know, when you think about when the prime minister kept talking about the sort of sunlit uplands of getting to the other side of this. And, you know, I mean, that was massively hubristic, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but, you know, I remember, I don't know exactly when this was, maybe over a year ago, hearing an interview with Caroline Lucas uh, on the Today programme, and she was asked, well, isn't climate change going to require a lot of sacrifice on the part of all of us? And she came back with this deeply flaky response, which was, is it a sacrifice to have clean air? Is it a sacrifice to have clean oceans? 
Well, you know, that's bullshit, right? Because <laughs> no, of course it's not a sacrifice to have those wonderful things that right now we can only dream of. Between where we are and that paradise that she's describing lies a value of sacrifice. We are going to have to give up some things that we really like. You know, my husband really loves meat. Now, he's probably cut his meat consumption in the last year by 50%. He knows he's going to have to keep cutting it. He knows why, and he's making that choice. But I think it's kind of uncharitable not to say at least thank you and to acknowledge it as a sacrifice. I mean, I quite like, you know, buying new shoes. I haven't bought new shoes in years. You know, I don't think this is a deep sacrifice on my part, but it is something that used to give me pleasure that I don't do anymore. I've decided this year that I won't fly to America for business because I just don't think it's tenable. And, you know, I have friends in America that I won't see, but I'm not going to do it anymore because I think it's the wrong thing to do. Now, you know, I don't think I'm some great martyr, but I think that this nursery rhyme or this fair, this kind of child's story that, yes, we can move to carbon neutrality without anybody noticing is, I mean, it's just infantile and it's wrong and it's not leadership. I'm going to get on a, a bit of a bandwagon here or not, you know, bang my drum <laughs> a bit. When I was running tech companies and, you know, and we'd be doing a new build of something and it would have a lot of new features and we were building multimedia software that nobody had ever built. So there were no guarantees that this brilliant idea somebody had had would work. And before we'd kind of go into a pretty heavy, hot, long couple of months of building this stuff, I can remember saying, you know, this is going to be really, really hard. And there are going to be times where we will wish we'd never started. And there will be definitely days where we think, oh, shit, now what do we do? But that's okay, because that's what happens when you do something nobody's ever done before. So don't panic. We'll get through it. We're great. We have fantastic people. We've solved problems before. It'll be okay. It's not, but it's not going to be a walk in the park. And people used to say, well, why don't you say anything about, you know, it's going to be fun and it's going to be wonderful. And it's because it's, on certain days, it is not going to be fun. And on those days, people will say, oh, this is what Margaret meant when she said, you know, one day this <laughs> will hit the fan. This is what she was talking about. And because they were told this is what was going to happen, they don't panic and they don't despair. So that's much more motivating than saying, for example, on D-Day, hey, guys, we're all going to the beach and it's going to be really fun and you'll be able to tell your kids about the wonderful picnic you had on the sand. <laughs> I mean, you know, really, we have to start finding the language to have a grown-up conversation about the grown-up choices that people have to make now and there's nonsense about it's not going to involve any sacrifice but we have to admit that people are going to find a lot of this transition difficult and we have to honor them for being willing to do it because they know what it's for and did i hear you mention then thanking people because I, I haven't heard yeah. anyone else say that because there's a view that we are a as a country and a society that has caused a lot of the problems globally that we are responsible and therefore should make penance straight away you know, because I, I do think you're right. There has to be some, I, 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 the thing you said about meat, you know, I, 
I keep saying the world is going to end because of that face people pull when you tell them you've only got oat milk. And that, yeah. is, that is at the moment the length of most people's willingness to engage is, yeah. well, I won't have a cup of tea, then I'd rather go without. And yeah. I think, holy cow, we're all going to die because of this. Yeah. But you are saying, you know, that there should be some sort of carrot in it and saying, look, this is going to be hard, but we will be grateful for you trying yeah. in the meantime. Well, and also, you know, I've just started this slightly insane project benchmarking the CO2 emissions of the village where I live and with a view to coming up with a plan of how do we as one village in Somerset get to net zero. And um, and it's a lot of hard handmade work. And the first thing we did, we're doing this as a, as a project with the University of Bath where I teach, is we created a website and a newsletter as a means of just keeping people constantly informed about what's going on as a way of getting them to kind of trust the process. And what I've said is, and what we've all said is, the tone of this is uh, be helpful, be nice, be positive, right? Mm -hmm. This is not going to be about shaming and blaming because that's not going to get anybody anywhere. But if you can tell me, you know, how to make all my favorite recipes with non-dairy milk, that's really helpful. And when I can see it's doable, I'll do it. And that kind of information sharing, I think, is essential. You know, I don't think we can go around shaming and blaming people because I think that destroys the social fabric that we need now more than ever. But I also think that what you can do instead of shaming and blaming people is when you see that people have made some of these adjustments, say, isn't that great? That's fantastic. Oh, you're using the refillable milk system at the, at the farm shop. Isn't it terrific? Do you think there's an honesty gap then in leaders as well then about not being straight with with yes. either you know their employees or you know if they're in businesses um, or even their customers or you know as we say politicians and the electorate that you know this is going to be tough and it is going to involve change and so is that there's an honesty gap that's opened up isn't there where people don't feel able to stick their neck out and actually you know sell the difficult stuff. I think that's right. And I think it's one reason why they're not trusted, because I think yeah. most adults know, oh, come on, don't tell me this is going to be easy. If it were easy, we'd have done it by now. Yeah. Mm. So they want to be liked, which means that they only want to tell, you know, happy stories. But I think that, you know, actually the way that you, you get people's trust is by calling it as you find it. That comes back to the kind of real cutting edge of leadership, isn't it? As you say, when people look around and go, okay, biggest collective, collaborative, existential crisis we've probably ever faced in our modern um, civilizational existence. Um, yeah. um, by the way, you know, as Allegra Stratton, you know, the Prime Minister's spokesperson on COP26 said the other week, you know, have you thought about using soap and not shower gel? And, you know, I think you're right. That point that you just made, the electorate turned around and go, piss off you know we know it's not going to be fixed by those kind of things no. and perhaps we need we need more of that straight talking which is kind of what you know in a weird way extinction rebellion brought to that leadership debate even though they are a non-hierarchical you know completely decentralized yeah. organization they collectively demonstrated a leadership going it's not enough it's, yeah you know let, let's have solutions which match the scale of the problem yeah so can i ask you both then as as the sort of the layman here why because we've mentioned the green party and and if we look over the last five or ten years there was a debate we weren't having in in a similar situation to the climate we knew there was a problem we didn't deal with it it was to do with immigration and 
people not feeling they were valued in the country they live in and not feeling they had opportunities. A party was set up, UKIP and then the Brexit party. It won the argument because it had those frank conversations and it made people feel empowered. It is now obsolete because we've left the European Union. How has the Green Party not been able to, and I guess this is a question all over the world because there will be similar versions of that party, do that same thing of saying, right, we're the we're the guys, we're going to talk to you about this, this affects all of us, so mm. everything the other parties talk about is irrelevant because if we don't solve the issue we're talking about, you're not going to have a society to live in. What a great question. I mean, I don't know. I was so dismayed by what Caroline Lucas said. I just, mm. I stopped thinking about the Green Party, you know, if I'm being honest. Yeah. But I, th- I think that my answer to that would be, I think it is about this complexity of personal lifestyle and behavior change because mm. you, c- you can vote. There might be implications for your work and you hopefully think they're positive if you guess if you voted for Brexit in terms of sovereignty and, you know, jobs being retained back inside the country. Whereas, you know, because climate change is us, you know, yeah. it, it is, it's much more personal. And so it then becomes more invasive, if you like, because that plays into the whole arguments around nanny state and government intervention and being told how to yeah. live your life. Mm. So I, I think, you know, in many ways, that's the resistance the Green Party comes up against. Whereas, you know, you can, you can press a button for disruption whether that's voting trump yeah. or, or voting brexit it, it has a different impact on you personally yeah and i think you know a lot of those very populist movements were inherently negative yeah right they were against mm. and i think strangely you know the rhetoric green parties need is to be i don't know is to be positive in the sense of Look, we've got. To, if we do this, we can save things for our children and our children's children. And I think that's where they've really missed a trick. Which is, yes, it is going to be difficult giving things up and changing behaviours and so on and so forth. And we may not like the fact that government should start telling people, well, actually, this is how you have to insulate your houses, mm. and here are guidelines as to how to do it. And we may not even like the fact that maybe they're going to have to cap what builders can charge for it in order that it not just turn into, you know, a horrible black market. But but I think if if it's the case that you have to have a relentlessly positive message to get people enlisted, and I'm not sure it is, but if it is, then I think you have to start getting people to think about what the future could look like if. Mm. So I I kind of get the clean oceans and clean air stuff, but it can only be if, mm. right? Which is, I mean, one of the things that, so two things. One is there's a really interesting article in Science a couple of years ago, which showed that the biggest influence on white conservative men in changing their minds about the climate crisis was their teenage daughters. That's interesting. Mm. Maybe we all should have been talking to them, to the teenage girls. But I think, you know, certainly I can remember having a kind of personal crisis a couple of years ago thinking, I just don't know how I can live with myself if I don't do more. Mm. Because I just looked at my children and I thought, I don't know why you aren't just furious with me. I don't see why you have any faith in me at all, given what I and my generation have done. And I think... You know, I think politics sorely lacks a language of the long term. A lot of leaders in business and in government, they've kind of stopped being leaders and they've just started being salespeople. 
Hmm. Um, you know, which is buy this, it's 10% off or it's 10% cleaner or whatever. I mean, one of the things that I keep hearkening back to, I guess, because it feels good, is that in the, you know, in the Second World War, when Britain was being bombed, they still gave free public concerts of classical music playing Beethoven and Bach. In other words, playing German music. Mm -hmm. And that's quite something. That's saying we are not at war with Germany. We're at war with fascism. Mm. And, you know, we are not at war with each other. We are going through this, having to go through this revolutionary change for our children and our future and the preservation of our society. And I haven't heard anybody say that. All anybody talks about now is what they're fighting against. I was going to say it's very powerful and it, it sort of chimes against the, the first point you mentioned, that idea that conservative white men, who, let's be honest, are the decision makers on the whole, yeah, have to see, they have to have a daughter and see them to be able to visualise the importance of mm. equality and action. And that, that idea of what you're fighting for and having to see it, I think is probably why we're we're in a mess with with the climate and and the same with COVID that you, you we're having to see it. We're having to see the frequency of forest fires and flooding happening at the same mm. time, you know, and it, it's a sort of depressing state when we're talking about remaining optimistic and having to believe that change is possible. That what we're also saying is it's going to have to be visibly very, very bad for mm. people to really act well enough. Yeah. Should we move on to why that is? What you we talked about the the dearth of leadership. Why do you think it's been allowed to so slowly happen that we're in this state? Well, it's it's a very good question. I mean, personally, I think we kind of fell for a myth that the way to make everything better was to develop highly competitive cultures. And I think this was a grotesque in some cases deliberate misreading of Darwin, thinking that survival of the fittest, which was not his phrase, was the secret to everything. So if you make everything more and more and more and more competitive, the best will rise to the top, the worst will fall away and will, you know, ascend to paradise. And I wrote probably my least successful book on this topic, <laughs> called The Bigger Prize. And I can remember when I was writing it every now and then I'd have a kind of crisis of conscience and say to my husband, you know, I think this is probably the biggest suicide note in history because saying you don't think competition is a great thing <laughs> is like saying you don't believe in God, you know, in the Middle Ages. But I think we really fell for that hook, line, and sinker, you know, left and right alike. And we really bought into that narrative in a way that we hadn't before, where in the past, I would say, and it's not like the past was ideal, but, you know, we're actually too big, too shiny, was kind of vulgar. I would say in the last 20 to 30 years, there was no such thing as too big, too shiny. There's no such mm. thing as too much consumption. Mm. And it was fueling the economies of the West. And there was this other nasty little myth attached to it, which was the myth of trickle-down, which is, no, my success doesn't hurt you. It helps you because the more money I have, you know, the more cabs I'll take or the more swanky restaurants I'll eat in or whatever. And I think it was really deeply underappreciated the day that scholars found that trickle-down was based on an error in a formula in an Excel spreadsheet oh, and that gosh. actually it doesn't work and it doesn't trickle down because mm -hmm. the very rich actually cannot spend all the money that they have 
they're trying, in fairness, going into space and, you know, <laughs> some of them are having a good go on pissing yeah. it on the wall. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and some of them still buy into it. It's trickling up. It's trickling <laughs> up to the moon. It's very, very sticky because people who have succeeded in a competitive environment, you know, kind of plausibly think, well, it worked for them. So what's the problem? Very few people criticize the system that has enriched them. Yeah, that's completely true. Now, there's also there's also another sort of some qualitative points, isn't there, from that sort of intensity of competition as well. Hmm. I mean, you talk very eloquently often at the Forward Institute about the sort of the adult state of leadership. You know, the fact yeah. that lead, leaders seem to lack time to even breathe or think with this sort of madness of multitasking and the mm. intensity of modern work where they have no perspective because they have no capacity to reflect they're just literally right. keeping the whole show on the road uh, at this absolutely frenetic pace yeah and it's interesting because most of the people I work with I meet with them for about half a day every month and I often this is not this is not true of every single one of them but it's true of many many of them I often think it's the one time in the month where they have time to think. I mean, they are just racing. And, you know, and in part, sometimes it's because, you know, the companies are are too big to run. It's too big for people to conceive of. It's too complex. And, you know, hierarchies, division of labor only kind of gets you so far. And there are huge swathes of these businesses, which they don't quite understand. I mean, they they trust that the people running them know what they're doing, but they cannot possibly know them in any kind of gritty detail because they're simply too gigantic. Mm. And, and and that's almost like the kind of the apogee of, I mean, you articulate it quite well in Uncharted, you know, the sort of the mantra of efficiency that, you know, mm. got cranked up and cranked up and cranked up to drive that competitive intensity and then you know that obviously then massively increases our vulnerability to unpredictability which in turn which in turn then seeds you know those sort of dual problems that you articulate Mm. you know both of willful blindness because no one can actually admit to looking at the thing that everyone knows is there but can't bear to talk about because it's intractable or very, very difficult to solve, mm. or sits right at the heart of the existing business model. And right. also the inability to throw your hands up and go, I don't know what the hell's going on here. And instead doubling down on ideas of certainty and, and prediction and, mm. and and trying to use those as as kind of crutches to justify yeah. you know business as usual. And I think also, you know, the the new crutch is technology, which is I don't know how to make these decisions. Let's invent some technology that will do the thinking for me, Mm. which I think is particularly alarming because then you get decisions which you can't explain. Well, yeah, you talk about that in that automation paradox, don't you? You Yeah. The idea that the more we delegate and devolve our skills, the more we lose them, which is is quite scary. Yeah. And and I mean, some of that I don't mind. I mean, for example, I don't know the phone numbers of my kids. I've delegated that chore, if you like, to my phone. I'm pretty comfortable with that. I mean, I'm not 100% comfortable. I sometimes think <laughs> maybe I should write it down somewhere, right? But then I think, well, I can ask my husband or you know, various people. But there are other chores like human communication, 
which I don't want to delegate. So when I'm typing an email, I really don't want Google to tell me what the next few words should be. And when I'm talking to somebody, I don't want to be talking to a machine instead. And I wouldn't particularly like my, you know, if I had a three-year-old, the three-year-old to grow up thinking it was fine to scream at people the way that I see three-year-olds screaming at Alexa. So we have to think about what the consequences of these different behaviors are long term. And I think, you know, a whole generation of, of male toddlers growing up screaming at this female machine, I think is an exceptionally bad way to educate our children. And I remember talking to the guy who, who was responsible for the voice recognition in Alexa. I said, you know, how come all these digital assistants are female? And he just kind of giggled and said, it's so funny. You know, everybody always asked me that. That was his answer. That was his answer. He had no more response beyond that. No, I said, well, you know, maybe you should just have named it after yourself. And he looked absolutely horrified. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the other thing I was going to ask, Margaret, is like, is there a sort of, is there a whole delusion around leadership? You know, the sort of the romance of leadership. I mm. mean, I remember reading, a. there's a quite a seminal paper, isn't there, by Mindel, Ehrlich and Dukerich, which they talked about the false attribution that people give uh, of, of performance, whether it's good or bad. So whether a company's, you know, singing or tanking, the false attribution they have to the role and the impact of the leader, often yeah. entirely without causality. And they described leadership almost as a susceptibility you know, a collectively mm-hmm. constructed romantic discourse, which, you know, given what you were saying about the scale and complexity of businesses now, you know, that sort of holds true, doesn't it? I mean, how anyone can actually influence some of these behemoths, um, mm. particularly when they may only be in tenure for, for four or five years, and then, right. and then they're off. Well, I think that's right. And I think it is a field just saturated with attribution errors all over the place, you know, so, so people think, you know, that Apple was a hugely successful uh, company only because of Steve Jobs, right? (laughs) I mean, just one person. And then it turns out that after he died, wow, the company still kept doing cool stuff and seemed to function quite well. Oops, maybe there were a few other people contributing to that success. No, I I think that's right. And the truth is, I think that especially in management studies, you know, there's a deep desire to try to make management into something kind of like a science and to be able to prove cause and effect. But you can't for the simple reason that no two companies are the same. So you can't do a controlled experiment. No two days are the same. So you don't have the the control you need to be able to develop a theory and test it over and over and over and over again to show that in each instance, it works just as you would, for example, to prove the theory of gravity. You know, I can drop any number of pencils from my hand and, and the theory of gravity says they will all hit the ground and they all do, but you can't do that in company management. I mean, it used to be the only theory of management that really held up was that if there's no money, the company goes bust. But even that isn't true anymore. <laughs> I mean, and those attribution errors, but they're used to justify, aren't they, the sort of disproportionate rewards that um, yeah. you know senior executives and chief executives take. That you know, that people say, "Well, I'm worth it." You know, look at the the impact I've had, and 
you know, I deserve to have, you know, 500 times the salary yeah. of the lowest paid in person in the company. Yeah. And so that, that, so that romance is also dangerous. Yes, it's very dangerous. And I'm, you know, I'm with Paul Pullman here. I remember interviewing him and he said, you know, the world doesn't need any more billionaires. Hmm. Billionaires don't make the world better. We need more people who have a sane, happy, sustainable way of life. That would have a transformational change to society and the planet as a whole. So how do we get to that goal then, if we move into the sort of happy end of our podcast, which is about <laughs> how we change this? Is it, I would you say, we've got the leaders we deserve or can we change leaders to become what we deserve? Or going back to Ed's quote from you in the introduction, changing the game, do we have to change what we consider to be leadership or where we find our leaders? I mean, I'm still a good old-fashioned believer in democracy, so I still believe we ought to get more people to vote. And I think we ought to hold our leaders to account more. But I also increasingly feel, and I, I mean, I do think that's really important. And I, I don't think the prime minister of a, of a country should think it's acceptable to go to the United Nations and pick a fight with a frog. Um, <laughs> I think, I also think that we have to take personal responsibility and ask ourselves the question, what can I do? So I think, you know, I've talked about this before, but when I had my sort of crisis of, oh, my God, I've got to do something, what is it going to be? The way I thought about it was as a sort of Venn diagram between, you know, what are the resources I have, which may be time, maybe money, maybe contacts, whatever. You know, what is the issue or what are the issues that I have huge passion for? because you need passion to keep going, you know, because all of these are, are big, long, mm. hard fights, you know, and where is their huge need? Because you don't, you know, you don't want to start working the small problems when we've got big ones. Mm. You've got to have the passion to keep going. And you want something to bring to the problem, not just kind of turn up empty-handed. And I think where those three things intersect, because people are going to have different passion and resources, you know, I think that's where one intervenes. So, you know, I feel really passionately about the climate because I care deeply about my children and, and their future. Other people are much more motivated by their passion for nature. Mm. So they're going to come at this problem in a very different way. And I don't really think it matters, you know, which, which of these things you really focus on, as long as you can think of a way to bring the resources you have and put them into action to try to do something that pushes in the right direction. Bearing in mind that there will, when you start, be no guarantee of success. There's just a guarantee that if you do nothing, then that's what's going to happen. Nothing. Yeah. So are you speaking now to to an individual? To, are you speaking to you know an individual listener in terms of the changes they can make? Or are you, are you encouraging the next generation of leaders? Is, is that a blueprint for them to begin their path to becoming leaders? I think both. And I think the crucial thing is, I mean, if you're in politics, you can't avoid climate change, but mm -hmm. you have to talk about it in a way that is meaningful and hopeful, and you have to be honest about it. But I think when it, when it comes to companies, they sometimes actually have more freedom Many don't use it, but they often have more freedom. 
And I think it's important for leaders in businesses to start thinking about where can we most effectively intervene and who are the people here who care. But does that also involve as a the leader and the person at the front an element of saying, I don't know how this ends? You know, Definitely. I'm looking for the people who want to help, but I, I don't fully know what I want yeah, you to do. So step don't. forward. Yeah. So, you know, so one of the stories I wrote about in my little TED book, Beyond Measure, was told to me by a, a friend of mine, just casually, because uh, I didn't know this about him. And he was working at ICI at the time that the Mon- uh, Montreal Protocol was introduced for the elimination of CFCs. And uh, and this was in his department, and it was on his watch. And so that was the deal, right? Well, here's this gigantic business that we're in, and we have to find a different way to do it. Now, nobody knew if it could be done, never mind how it could be done. So he had sort of three principles. One was we need everybody because we don't know what kind of – we don't know how to solve it, so we need all the talent we can get our hands on. Mm-hmm. Secondly – Let's not kid ourselves and lower our ambition before we start. The ambition has to be the best possible, the best imaginable solution. So that's a high bar. Mm -hmm. And the third principle was that he, as the leader, had to butt out because he knew, especially when you're trying to do something new and difficult, that actually management interference can be really annoying and, and destructive because people want to please you. So they start thinking, what do you want to hear as opposed to what's the answer? So his job was to provide air cover, you know, make sure that his bosses, you know, would just would leave them alone. And he said also his job was to sit in meetings and make sure that all voices were being heard. Mm. So that, you know, whether junior or senior, whether male or female or whatever, but that everybody had a voice. And that's how ICI became the first company in the world to come up with a substitute for CFCs. Do you feel we're anywhere close? I know this is supposed to be the happy bit at the end, but (laughs) are we anywhere close to having political leaders who, A, have that courage and bravery to stand up and say, I don't know where this is going, but will you help me? And B, are we anywhere close to a world in which all the voices that need to be heard are heard equally? Um, well, if we have the political leaders, I haven't seen them. It doesn't mean they're not there. Leaders frequently emerge in crises. Mm-hmm. I do think, and I think this is important, I think we do have the technology we need. I mean, the technologies. Mm-hmm. There are huge numbers of solutions with enormous potential. So I don't think this is a technology problem. I think it absolutely is a social political leadership problem. And in a way, that's kind of encouraging and discouraging. Great, we have the tech, but now it, it really is up to us. And whether yes. we hold our leaders to account, you know, if you're going to hold up the M25, actually, I'm all for that. If that's what it takes to tell people we have to insulate a house and a half every minute to get to where we need to be by 2050. Mm-hmm. You know, that is kind of leadership of a kind that we haven't seen very much of. And it comes, I guess, from what you were saying earlier of the fact that they don't see leaders having anything near an honest conversation. You do force people to the extremes because nowhere in the mainstream are we saying these things are hard but can be done. Yeah. And I think, you know, one reason people rallied to Greta Thunberg was they thought, yep, she's telling the truth. 
Yes. Now, I think the downside of that is it's pretty depressing. And so I think the next chapter of that has to be, okay, so what are we going to do? I don't think most people can stand the depressing much longer. Mm -hmm. I think it's making them feel helpless. So we badly need in companies, in villages, in communities, in local government and national government and global government. We need people showing how stuff can get done and showing how they've done it so we can all copy quickly from each other. The thing that you're saying there, Margaret, is about, it's you know, we talked to um, James Plunkett, author of End State, you know, yeah. who's talking about paradigm shifts, you know, and, and actually it's that transformative piece, isn't it, that mm-hmm. kind of insulate Britta they're trying to, to bring to the fore. Uh, and you talk about that, again, in terms of the attributes of leadership, in terms of unething ourselves, you know, this sort of mm. willful creativity and experimentation and curiosity. And mm. I, I was talking to a friend the other night, and we were talking about Annie Nightingale, you know, the DJ, yeah. who is still on Radio 1 at 81. You know, she's 81 years old. She's been on Radio 1 for nearly half a century. And she's playing grime and, you know, and experimental <laughs> music, you know. And it's just, it's extraordinary to have someone of that longevity. And, and obviously mm-hmm. she stayed in that position because she has that restless experimentation and yeah. curiosity and, and willful creativity. Yeah. And actually, what I think is quite interesting is, I mean, I'm a big fan of, I mean, what Adorno called late style, but I particularly love it in politicians. You know, there's a there's a moment where people often become so old, they just don't care what people think about them anymore. <laughs> and I remember seeing Ann Richards, the governor of Texas, like this. You know, she was like King Lear. I mean, it was astounding. She was so angry and she was so blunt. And it was magnificent because she was free. Mm. And I think, um, you know, so it may be, I don't know, it may be that the many deeply unhappy members of the conservative and labor parties in their old age may find the freedom which they didn't have when they were younger. I mean, either that or we're going to need a whole new generation of leaders. And actually, probably we need both. And it's one reason why I think mentoring is really deeply useful as an activity, because I think anybody who's acquired whatever wisdom they've got the hard way should try to help the younger generation avoid some of the battle scars, because there's just a lot to do. And I think increasingly, we've got to be as generous as we can with a younger generation of rising leaders and really put our resources and knowledge and experience, you know, at, to their back and call because they're more motivated than anybody's going to be and we have to help them. Ed put something on our podcast WhatsApp group the other week, I think, didn't you, Ed, about a really depressing statistic about how young people now are starting to feel that the future isn't salvageable. And that that is a real tragedy because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Our, our generation processing our guilt or, or trying to sort of, ferment some anger but if you are passing on to a generation who you have then made feel that things cannot be made better you're in deep 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 trouble yeah and i think i mean i i think my children often feel that there is there's no reason to be hopeful and you know they're they're young and they're energetic and so i think denial kind of keeps them going Hmm. but i know there are definitely moments where they think well what's the point Hmm. You know, where we are right now, and I think this is perfectly plausible, 
where we are right now is the best it is ever going to be in their lifetime. Oh, we've we've blown the happy ending. <laughs> now, if that's really how you see your future, and I think it's perfectly plausible and unhysterical, then we owe it to this generation to give them all the help and resources we've got to make their outlook plausibly better than that. And then trying to find, you know, some some other light in that, you know, slightly Stygian mm. gloom is I, I think, you know, for me, it's it's about embracing some of that uncertainty and doubt. You know, and yeah. again, you write about how powerful uncertainty and doubt can be, don't you? Yeah. You know, as I say, this is, you know, this is not about winning. You know, if we think right. it's about winning, then we're definitely going to lose. And yeah. so that that humility and that ability to embrace the uncharted future and the kind of myriad possibilities, you know, some of which are thoroughly unpleasant and some of which mean we might scrape through uh, in some way, shape or form. But as you say, it's about having the right foundations for those cathedral style projects of the long term. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. But I think we can enhance the luck our kids will need by giving them everything we've got and everything we know. I'd love to talk to you about how you found the process of acting locally and trying Mm. to drive your village forward, whether that has changed your understanding of people and how much they want to get involved, whether it's given you any sympathy with our current leaders, expanding out Mm. what you're doing on a global scale, and how it's affected your mental well-being, feeling more involved at a scale that you can see on your street. Well, I think it's really interesting. In Uncharted, there's an individual I interviewed who has this wonderful sentence, which is, action is how you search. Mm. Um, And it's one of those wonderful sentences that has an immediate meaning. And then as you go through life, it has more and more meaning. And I think what I found in the Village Project, which is, you know, only in its infancy, is it makes me feel less alone because I find other people who want to do stuff. Mm It makes me feel I can have an impact because it's on a human scale. And so it's a fantastic antidote to despair. And I think it hugely builds social fabric within the community, which in itself becomes a great asset. And so while there are also days, you know, where everybody screws up and we all hate each other and and wish we'd never started, right? like every project, right? I mean, it's definitely it's definitely dealt with my despair by giving me a community and giving me stuff to do. Um, but I suspect that inside of it somewhere, and I don't know yet, are some good lessons about grassroots activity. And I'm a big fan of you know the economics Nobel laureate Eleanor Ostrom, who you know had fantastic case studies of of this kind of grassroots activity leading to much better decision making than when it's imposed by people who think they know everything. And I think this may end up being quite a good case study of that. And, I, you know, I think local activity has a really bad reputation. Everybody likes to sneer at local government. But, you know, if we don't start taking ownership and responsibility for our communities, then why are we in them? So it's definitely helping my mental health. There's no question in my mind about that. I think, you know, my working hypothesis for this project is there is a pent-up demand to do something, but nobody knows what. 
So to the degree that you can create some kind of framework in which people can make good decisions about what to do, I think you're going to unleash a huge amount of pent-up energy. Yeah. You said 95% of leadership is convening, and perhaps it is the convening to bring people together to do those things, which make them feel useful and help them feel that they're contributing. Yeah, and then makes them think, what else can I do? And now you have a chance of getting somewhere. There's this great quote from Raymond Williams. He said, you know, there are no masses. There are only ways of seeing people as masses. And on a scale like this, we don't have to see people as masses. We can just see people as people. Mm. And I think when people feel seen and heard, they tend to respond as people, not masses. Mm. That's a lovely point for me. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, guys, encapsulate your thoughts about that interview with Margaret. Mark, I guess we should come to you first. But this information is fresh to you. Mm-hmm. Where did Ed and I go wrong? What questions should we have asked? Um, it made me think that the podcast probably doesn't need me. <laughs> oh, not true. I thought, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, the thing that really struck home with me was, I think, the quote that you often use, Ed, which is Edward Abbey's better a cruel truth than a comfortable delusion. Mm. And she just really laid it out in a way that was pretty unequivocal. And that lack of leadership that Ed and I have been battling with for 20 years, you know, and she's one of the best and she still feels it. And I think one of the things I really felt was, you know, with kids, the whole thing that this might be the best it's ever going to be for our kids and the, and our responsibility to do as much as we can. And also to try and stay happy while that's going on. That's mm. quite a challenge. And that's a different kind of leadership challenge because one of the things I thought was everybody talks about leadership is everybody happy about leaders when things are going well, but actually leaders really show their mettle when things are going badly wrong. And we've got 30 years of things probably going badly wrong, but at the moment it seems we do not have the leaders to deal with it. Yeah, I found it, I found it quite sobering. Uh, and also because I also realized that, that you know, uh, you two are perfectly fine without me and uh, uh, I should probably just stay in Ibiza. <laughs> well, nonsense. Um, you were missed greatly. I think the other thing that really struck me about Margaret's interview, though, is this honesty gap, you know, when she talked about D-Day. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and sort of political rhetoric around things like climate. And I was in reflecting on it and thinking back to, you know, sort of John Major era when he famously said, if it isn't hurting, it isn't working. And I was like, okay, so if we can say that about the stuff that gets imposed on us and yet we shy away from making the tough choices uh, yes. in regard to climate, it's, it's really sort of paradoxical because then you've got, you know, basically our prime minister at the moment standing up and saying all of the chaos we're experiencing at the moment is the price worth paying, you know, for the Brexit dividend and the high wage, high skill, high productivity economy that we're supposedly being promised on the other side of it. And I just thought that's just not true, is it? And I wonder whether we're sort of stuck with what one of my um, leadership buddies calls the dark triad, which is, you know, the bastards of the universe which is a mixture of sort of narcissists machiavellian types and psychopaths and i I used to put up a slide in my talks which had you know narcissist which was boris uh machiavellian which was farage and psychopath which was jacob reese mogg Mm. um and, and what we need i think you know in terms of the leadership is much more of what you know like in 
Africa they call Ubuntu, you know, that I am because we are, that sort of collective sense of leadership where you're standing shoulder to shoulder and it's 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 more shared. But then but then that took me back to my favorite Dilbert cartoon, which is where the boss sort of says, I've I'm trying out a new leadership model. Uh, a new, new shared leadership model. And Dilbert goes, oh, that's great. What's my part? And the boss goes, let me see. I've got you down for something called blame. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That's the first time ever when someone's recounted a cartoon to me laughed. <laughs> I, think, I do think, though, that, that leadership now is, is should be about giving power to people rather than having it over them. And that's the problem we've got. Yeah. Now, we're going to enter the confessional booth. Ed, you preside over this, so you have final judgment. So let's get into the confessional. Yeah, so this week's uh, penitent in the uh, Earthly Sins confessional booth is a gentleman called Peter Hughes, uh, who calls himself Padre Petey. Uh, and he says, he goes, I work in sustainability and teach yoga on the side. So we've already got his measure. He goes, I've been vegetarian. It's only one position, isn't it? Yeah. Yoga <laughs> on the side. side. <laughs> Are you missing downward dog sun salutations? <laughs> exactly. Sideward dog. I haven't tried that one. <laughs> I've been vegetarian for about 10 years and vegan for a couple. Well, at least on my Instagram account. You see, I teach a late <laughs> evening class on Thursdays and sometimes afterwards when feeling a bit tired or blue, I wander the aisles of the co-op a couple of doors down and I seek out the delicious discounts. You know, was £2.50, now 78p, because co-op really slashes the prices, not like the stingy three-piece style discounts in less socialist establishments. <laughs> anyway, sometimes my eye is caught by a meaty snack, be it a BLT or a chicken salad sandwich or the worst, a scotch egg. And yes, I buy it. I walk across the road to where my bike is locked and I eat the whole thing down in one. <laughs> sometimes sometimes two meaty goods at a time. I mean, the thought of him stuffing two scotch eggs into his mouth simultaneously. I bit, think, yeah. yeah. Confessional in one sense, but yeah. a round of applause for nailing a scotch egg in one. Yeah. Here's the problem, though. There's no recycling bin nearby. And I can't just put the packaging in a landfill bin, can I? So I bring it home and hide it in the bottom of my house's recycling box in shame. <laughs> and any time my girlfriend says... What's this Tudor chicken bacon sandwich box doing in here? I blame it on obnoxious passers-by making use of our recycling. He says, drugs are seen as kind of okay in small bite-sized chunks now, right? Is it the same with quarterly meaty snacks, or am I the equivalent of a vegan crack addict? (laughs) (laughs) So, Pete, uh, I mean, you know, where do we go with this? I mean, can I just say, can I just say that Pete has set the bar Hi, hi here. This is a very good confession, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm almost—I'm almost tempted to say it's quite a meaty one. Oh, yes, yeah, something to chew on. Um, yeah. No, I mean, food waste is a terrible thing, you know. And to be a gleaner and to be stepping in there and to honour the sacrifice of the poor piggy uh, that went into that scotch egg that might well end up in that co-op bin is probably a good thing on balance. Um, what is prob- perhaps more problematic is the deceit uh, and the denial to one's partner that you are surreptitiously snarfing uh, such scotch eggs on the sly. Um, but also you need to, need to come clean and chew properly. Poorly executed <laughs> mastication is a sin against good digestion. So keep on gleaning. Pete, uh, but come clean uh, and make sure you masticate regularly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you enjoyed that. 
I did. I could, I could hear that. Wonderful. <laughs> Mark, anything to add? I think he's. I think he should be forgiven. I think he shows yeah. a, a great degree of self awareness. He's he's confessed. I think the only thing is is the deceit uh, with his partner should, needs to end. I think two things. Right. I think she knows all this. Oh, I lie about it when she finds it in the bin. She ain't stupid. She knows exactly what's going on. And I think she doesn't call him up on it because she probably does the same thing every now and again. She thinks he's doing it. So I think maybe confess and have it as a shared thing you do. Mm. But, you know, it sounds like you're... I I still maintain, you know, 100,000 people going vegan every year, weighed up with half a billion people cutting meat out once or twice a week. You know, it's it's not the same thing. So it sounds like you're broadly a good guy. You're doing the right things. And you should give yourself a break. Thank you for joining us this week. We have, coming up over the next few weeks, we have similarly fascinating and difficult conversations. So uh, stay tuned. We've got some amazing guests. Keep your confessions coming in. If they're of the standard of that last one, then they will be a welcome addition to the podcast. And Mark and Ed, as always, thank you so much for your time. Well, John, you know, without you, there is no podcast. So we must thank you for the platform and the generosity with which you extend your massive celebrity status in order to help, <laughs> in order to help us talk about these difficult things. I'm yeah. not going to deflect to the compliment, but if you open up the podcasts app on your phone, you'll find there's quite a lot of podcasts without me and some of them are doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with this chart buster. And if you would like to be involved, then the way you can reach us is here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. We will see you next week. Thanks for downloading. If you have downloaded, if you would take a moment to go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a nice rating and a nice review, that always helps boost us up the charts. So please do leave us a a nice review and a nice rating if you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. (laughs) 